Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Today we've got a podcast devoted entirely to crossover fiction. But what do we mean by crossover fiction? Well, it's a fiction that appeals to both teenagers and adults alike, and whilst it used to be considered a guilty pleasure, perhaps only for the e-reader, more adults are becoming loud and proud about their love of the genre. And we've got three crossover authors in this podcast to tell you why. First up, there's Louisa Reed, author of Black Heart Blue, reading a short extract and answering some questions. Next, we have Alex Scarrow, author of the historical fiction series Time Riders, who will be talking to us about the appeal of young adult novels. After that, we have an extract from the audiobook edition of Owen Colfer's final instalment of the Artemis Fowl series, The Last Guardian, followed by a chat with the author himself. So first up, here's Louisa Reed talking to us about her latest book, Black Heart Blue. Hi listeners, I'm here with um, Louisa Reed, author of Black Heart Blue, her new debut novel. What we're going to do is we're going to quickly go over to Louisa, first of all, for an extract reading of Black Heart Blue. Rebecca, after. They tried to make me go to my sister's funeral today. In the end, I had to give in. The black dress Hepzibah had worn last year when Granny died hung heavy from my bones, and I wore it like armour. She'd always been bigger, born first, stronger, prettier, the popular twin. I'd been walking in her shadow for 16 years, and I liked its cool darkness. It was a safe place to hide. Now I shivered in the stark January air. It was the first day of the new year, and my sister had been dead for one whole week. Granny had been kind, and we'd looked forward to staying with her like other kids look forward to Christmas. It was a chance to eat chocolate and watch television, a chance to read books until well past bedtime. At Granny's, we were allowed to laugh out loud and play dress-up. She even let us try her makeup. Hepsi loved makeup. The more sparkly, the better. Granny made sure my sister got a bra when she was 12 and started a show. Sometimes she'd take us to the cinema and we would watch unsuitable films. Disney princesses, cartoons, Harry Potter. She was the mother's mother and she loved us. She used to kiss me and tell me I was lovely. Her little love. No one else ever said that. As we got older, we visited her less and less. No need, said the parents. We could make ourselves useful at their church events instead of lounging about at Granny's. Years yawned wide with her absence. I know Granny missed us. When she rang up and one of us managed to answer, her voice sounded thin and far away, like a paper aeroplane spiralling out of sight. And then she died. I've recorded today as another black day in its air, a story inscribed hard on my heart. The tales I keep hidden within are many. If you ever open me up, then you'll read the truth. Look inside, peel back skin and flesh, excavate bone, and there you'll find a library of pain. Perhaps you will ask me to explain... I am, after all, the curator of this past, but some things are too terrible to tell, and those words are buried deep. Those are the words I never even whispered to my sister. Those are the words that I daren't say aloud. I wish they wouldn't cry in the walls of my room and hunt me down in my dreams. Wow, thank you very much, Louisa. It's quite a powerful opening. What was the inspiration behind Black Heart Blue? I think that I had seen a programme on television about a man called John O'Lancaster and his um, experience of living with a syndrome called Treacher Collins. So that was one of the inspirations that led me to think about writing a story from the perspective of somebody with a facial disfigurement. 
So that was partly the inspiration. And also I've always loved stories about doubles and about twins. So from that aspect, I had the, the twin idea. I also have twin sisters in my family, although the characters are certainly not based on them. But, yeah, so the, there were a few things going on in my mind. Also, I'd uh, heard in the news quite a lot of shocking, horrible stories about child abuse and um, really been outraged at the way that, as a society, these things can happen. So I, was, I wasn't thinking deliberately I want to write a book about this, but it was there in my subconscious, and I think I expressed it through the narrative. Definitely, and it seems that a lot of fiction seems to be going down that path, getting darker and darker, and we've seen that in, obviously, young adult reads all the dystopian mm-hmm. stuff that's coming through there. And it also seems that facial disfigurement is also becoming a theme such as Wonder, the novel. Yeah. Why did you go down this one? Was it? Did you feel like it was a trend at the moment or is it something that you've always, well, always wanted to? No, I didn't think it was a trend. I didn't realise it would be a trend. Obviously, when I started writing Black Heart Blue, I hadn't w- heard about Wonder or Skin Deep. That's another book, I think, that's come out addressing this this issue of facial disfigurement. So I actually thought it was quite original, but obviously <laughs> so did a few other people. But I think it's to do with issues of beauty that we have so much in the in the media. And there's having two small daughters myself, thinking about them growing up in this world where to have an ideal, perfect physical form is, you know, the, the triumph of achievement. That was something that was on my mind. And the darkness, well, I've always loved dark fiction. I'm a huge fan of the gothic, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Dracula, Jekyll and Hyde, anything to do with exploring the the darker side of, of human beings has always fascinated me. So that it was natural for me to write in that genre. That's the kind of thing I really enjoy reading. Yeah, and, and as you said before, um, both Hepsi and Rebecca are twins. Mm-hmm. What is kind of our fascination with twins? Why is this always occurring throughout lots of literature? Even on TV, we've got Tia and Tamara. You've got one of a kind. All of this seems to always revolve around twins. Do you think it's because it's easier for an audience to relate because they often have the two sides of personality in one character shall we say yeah I think that's fascinating isn't it thinking how connected are they really do they really mirror one another or are they actually can we see these people as complete individuals um, away from one another and that that desire for individualization is really important everybody wants to be unique original special and then if you're a twin and you've always got this other other self that people automatically connect with you I think that that that's probably quite difficult to handle so I like thinking about twins from that perspective and also the again that idea of the hidden self what are you acting out through your your double that you wouldn't necessarily do so Hepsi does a lot of things that Rebecca wouldn't dream of doing yeah. um, but perhaps secretly somewhere in her she wants to know about them she's she's got that fascination so they they are in some ways two halves of the same coin but in other ways utterly utterly different. I think as well it's a, it's an idea to, idea to do with disguise. If you have a twin, then you can dress up, you can be somebody else, you could take on their identity for yeah. the day. And that's so much that the idea of that is so much fun, so interesting. So twins just have this whole wealth of imaginative possibility to explore, make great fictional characters, I think. Yeah, and I think it's amazing the kind of discovery that Rebecca goes through having to to lose her twin and start becoming her own person, especially yes. when she's got, you know, the teacher Collins, it's quite a Yeah a downpull on achieving that. Yeah. Do you think that's kind of often the case with twins and that they're always trying to trying to um achieve their own personality but perhaps if they lost the other personality then they would 
struggle with it. Absolutely. I think that this is, um, there's this pulling away and that, but always needing to come back to that other, that other self that you're so close to. And certainly the twins in Black Heart Blue do that. They pull from each other and they, but then Rebecca's haunted by Hepsi's presence, isn't she? Once she's gone, she can't leave her behind. She has to keep coming back to the vicarage, trying to, to seek her out. She's desperate that she hasn't been left alone. So I, I, I think if you were a twin, you would always have that feeling of there's me but that there's another me yeah and if you lost that other me I don't know how you'd cope with that it must be terribly difficult yeah and I think as well Rebecca kind of strives for knowledge she loves reading and there's a lot of literature references in the book as well is that from your own kind of literary love it is. I mean, that was those are some of the things that I really um, enjoyed putting in, those references to books that I've loved. For example, The Yellow Wallpaper. Yeah. You've got this feeling of in the room, this this wall that's somehow alive. And that was an obvious literary allusion to a short story I adore. And then there's the window in the room, and that's kind of got Wuthering Heightsy references. There's lots of references to... Um, to fairy tales so yes it's all the books that I've loved and I've read many times taught many times they've all kind of cropped up in there somewhere along the way and Rebecca's love of reading gave me the opportunity to chuck them all in so I really enjoyed that yeah it's it's amazing for that and it's nice to see her kind of struggle against her father for knowledge and it seems that father the vicar is against them acquiring any knowledge which may make them stronger than what they are kind of thing um, for example when choosing to go to school and get out of homeschooling their subjects were t- were decided for them exactly and religion is a theme that's throughout the book with the yeah. vicar what kind of inspired you to pop that in as well why the character of the vicar why not just mm. just a normal kind of nine to fiver say yeah I think that that was to do with this idea of appearance and reality and really wanted to strip away the notion that just because somebody's really a respected figure in the community doesn't mean that you can necessarily trust them obviously I'm not saying that vicars are bad and I don't want anybody to get that impression but uh, having a, that religious element to it, it gave him a power and, a, and an authority that perhaps just any other ordinary dad in a community might not have. So it enabled me to have the interplay between him and the parishioners, for example, and him being able to con people into in having faith and trust in him. But I guess he could have been a politician, he could have been a policeman, he could have been a, a teacher or anything like that that would have given him that extra status. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to suggest to people about, you know, he presents himself as such a paragon of virtue and to all intents and purposes on the outside, he's quite charismatic, he's quite handsome. And then you've got Rebecca who has uh, a facial disfigurement and for that reason feels very much that society responds to her in a negative way. But she's the one underneath it all who has the goodness, the strength, the love, all the things that we should admire in a person. So that's why the the religious element was was there, I think. Yeah, and what's your plans with... Have you got a new bit coming out? Um, Have you started penning that or...? Yes, I'm working on the another book now it's called lies like love i've written a couple of drafts i'm still working through it and trying to make it the most impactful it can be it's a different book it's got 
themes of sexual obsession, which is quite interesting for teens, I think, destructive relationships, but also for adults. I mean, this again, it crosses over both reading ages, really, and it's also about madness. So again, that allows me to explore society's attitudes to people with a difference this time, perhaps one that's not quite so visible, something that you can't necessarily see immediately. So I'm really enjoying trying to work through that and get the best possible story out of it. Sounds fascinating. And and finally, just one last question. Why should people pick up Black Heart Blue? I think people should pick up Black Heart Blue because it's a bit different. It's not the kind of book you're going to read every day and it will probably have a strong emotional impact on you as a reader. That's what I've been told anyway, that it has that emotional impact. And, yeah, I think that it's a page turner it's pretty gripping and definitely you'll get through is. it fast <laughs> definitely well thank you very much louisa for coming in today you're very welcome thanks thanks that's louisa reed author of black heart blue next we have alex scarrow who will be talking to us about writing for both young adults and adults alike hello again listeners i'm here with another of our young adult authors alex scarrow whose time writer series has been captivating readers for two years alex can you tell us a little bit about the latest book and the series hi um the latest book is called City of Shadows. That's uh, the sixth in this nine-book series. And it's, well, it's a real game-changer, this book. Up until now, the team have been working together uh, under the uh, the guidance and, and, and instructions of the agency, this mysterious agency that actually they know so very little about. But all of a sudden, they've, uh, in book five, Gates of Rome, Maddie makes the mistake of basically asking the wrong question which results in a, in a squad of uh, those support units coming back, hell-bent on destroying them. And now, book six, they're on the run uh, from these things and having to re-establish a new base in another location and, and set up shop again. And it's, it's a chance for, for mid-series to really shake things up uh, as we set ourselves up for the final uh, act of this, of this nine-book series. And, and the teenagers have been involved in a lot of time traveling. What's been your favorite historical period to write? That's a tricky one. I, I, I've picked, I deliberately picked periods of history, all of which interest me. So it's it's a case of cherry picking is the ones I'd most like to visit and romp around in. Um, but I think, if, you know, if you're gonna put a gun to my head and ask me to pick one, <laughs> I think I had the most fun so far uh, in Rome. Uh, but I have to say, having having um, written book six now um, and exploring Victorian London in greater detail, I'm I'm enjoying the fact that we're based there at the moment. Yeah, and as you said, Victorian London is making quite a big feature in the latest edition. Were you influenced influenced a little bit by the growth of coverage of London over the past couple of years? The growth of London, the kind of media coverage of what were the Olympics coming yeah, up? Yeah, Olympics thinking? coming up. Um, not so much that. No, um, it actually was because uh, I also write adult books, and my last adult book was uh, a book called The Candleman, which is um, a story uh, about Jack the Ripper um, from a, an interesting perspective. It's it's from the point of view of Jack the Ripper himself. But uh, doing a lot of the research for that book uh, led me down to, to research into the old days of Victorian London and Whitechapel and, and the, uh, the squalor uh, and the, the life of Victorian Londoners. And I found it fascinating the, the, how very similar 
they are to us today. I mean, did you know they had takeaways in Victorian London? I didn't. I they didn't actually know that. had takeaways. I mean, they, they weren't chippies, they weren't KFCs, <laughs> they, they, were, they were pie and potato takeaways, you know. Wow. And there's so many things that draw parallels with, with life as a Londoner today that you find, yeah, wow, it's, it's similar similar rhythm to life then as, as now, but obviously grittier and dirtier and smellier and, and tougher. Yeah, definitely. And I've been asking some of our young adult authors what they think has catapulted um, the young adult genre back into the mainstream lately. I mean, we've had The Hunger Games. We've had lots of series coming from that. What is kind of making it come back in and what's the appeal to both children and adults? Well, I, I, I can't help feeling that the what's fueling uh, the success of the young adult genre is the fact that um, a lot of adults are secretly reading it. Uh, and I think this is partly... Uh, a, because of things like the Kindle eBooks, that you know you can read a book that uh, anonymously, so you can be sitting on the train with a book and you're flipping through it, and no one can see whether you're reading a teen series, an adult series, a heavy French literary book, or or, or Fifty Shades of Grey. Even. Um, <laughs> And I think that's helped to allow adults to feel less self-conscious about reading outside of what is their targeted age group. And and the great thing about YA fiction, I think, is that it is being written by writers who who are um, prepared to challenge teen readers into reading the material that is that is borderline adult or even adult. And it nicely crosses over between adults and then young readership. I find with time writers, what for me is is absolute magic is when I when I do an event and I meet a, a father and a son or a mother and a daughter and they're both fans. And as a parent myself, that means that's a conversation you can have with your, your teen kid uh, at an age where most of the time the best you're going to get is a grunt. Yeah. <laughs> To actually have a, yeah, do you remember that bit where he does that? Oh, yeah, that's awesome, Dad. Yeah, and to have that conversation. Uh, and, and I'm so proud that, that, that you know, I'm, I'm making that conversation occur across breakfast tables. Definitely. And Time Ride is, is a series. And this is the sixth book that we're on now. Yeah. What can you say to encourage new readers to pick up the first book and get involved with the series? Um, well, what I would say to, to people who just don't have the book habit is, is that um, you are... You're missing out on something incredible. There's, I re- remember reading an article in a science magazine about five years ago about how the brain grows. Uh, and it does a lot of growing up until roughly the age 24, 25, and then it stops doing its, its, its major growth spurt. But between the ages of, I think, um, 11 and 24, your brain, um, there's a state of hallucination, vivid hallucination, that you can experience between the ages of 11 and 24 that uh, has one particular stimuli, and that's the printed word, which is why um, if you ask your adults that you know in your life, teachers, parents, what the favourite book is that they've ever read, I can guarantee you you'll, they'll pick a book they read between the ages of 11 and 24 because they had that incredible see-through-the-pages experience of reading, that falling through the paper into the world and actually seeing it. You lose that ability after 24. You just enjoy a book for what it is, a book. But, um, you know, if you don't read between those two ages, you are missing out on the most mind-alteringly profound experience. And I, I do say that to young lads who kind of go, oh, I don't do books. No, no, books enough. I say, well, you are missing out on, on um, something that's better than 3D IMAX. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Alex, for coming in. And City of Shadows is out on August 2nd? I think that is right, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Alex Scarrow talking to us about his latest book, City of Shadows. Next, we have an extract from the audiobook edition of The Last Guardian, 
Oenkalfa's final instalment from the Artemis Fowl series. Eru, present day. The berserkers lay arranged in a spiral under the rune stone, looping down, down into the earth, boots out, heads in, as the spell demanded. Of course, after ten thousand years underground, there were no physical boots or heads. There was just the plasma of black magic holding their consciousness intact. And even that was dissipating, tainting the land, causing strange strains of plants to appear and infecting the animals with uncommon aggression. In perhaps a dozen full moons, the berserkers would be gone, utterly, and their last spark of power would flow into the earth. We are not all disappeared yet, thought Oro of the Danu, captain of the berserkers. We are ready to seize our glorious moment when it comes, and to sow chaos among the humans. He sent the thought into the spiral, and was proud to feel his remaining fairy warriors echo the sentiment. Their will is as keen as their blades once were, he thought. Though we are dead and buried, the spark of bloody purpose burns bright in our souls. That was an extract from the audiobook edition of The Last Guardian, and now we have an interview with Owen Colfer himself. Hi listeners, I'm Sarah, I'm back again to the Penguin Podcast. I'm sitting here with Owen Colfer, author of Artemis Fowl. Owen, can you tell us just a little bit about the book? The Artemis Fowl story started with Artemis Fowl, teenage criminal mastermind living in Dublin, Ireland, who decides to do what many boys have done before him, i.e. capture a leprechaun for its crock of gold. But he has more resources at his disposal and he manages to actually capture a leprechaun. But he finds out that the leprechauns are very advanced fairy folk and their technology is way ahead of ours. And he wasn't expecting this. And so now there's a battle for the fairies to get their captain back while Artemis is trying to secure his ransom in gold. And from there it moves on. They join forces and they become friends and they fight goblins, they fight megalomaniacs, they fight little pixies and uh, each other again. So it's it's kind of a roller coaster comedy, fantasy, crime novel. And this is the last one in the series, The Last Guardian. Yep, this is the last one after 10 years or more. Um, we're coming to the book number eight. And uh, finally, Artemis does something nice and he becomes almost a hero. And when that happens, that's really the end of the story. And and why now? Why have you why have you chosen to end the series? Uh, I didn't really realize I was going to end it when I started writing the book. I thought I may be able to do two more, but about halfway through, I realized that there was no other way to make Artemis back into the bad guy. Um, I had taken his memory away. I had sent him back in pa- into the past. I gave him schizophrenia, so I had used all the gimmicks. And if I tried it again, I think it would be obvious to the fans that I was just kind of in a way fooling with them and tricking them uh, into buying another book. So once I realized that, then I kind of reluctantly told uh, Puffin that this was going to be the last one. Yeah. And the character Artemis, what do you think he'll be doing, say, in 10 years time? Well, I would hope that he would have his empire still in some form, but not a criminal empire. I like to think he'd be more of a humanitarian like his father, and he'd be very interested in the environment. But I still think he might be taking a little bit of revenge on on any big companies that are destroying the environment or taking advantage uh, of the local population. So 
he's, he will be a little bit of a, an ecological Robin Hood, I think. Yeah. And it's great that there is such a young adult reading phenomenon going on at the moment. What do you think has brought this so much into the kind of public area? I think there are a few things responsible. One of them is that we had some big, huge blockbuster books that came out and basically made reading cool again and also encouraged a whole new generation of readers to exist. Uh, and I, obviously, I mean, things like uh, Percy Jackson and uh, Harry Potter and and so forth. And when the kids read these, they become readers. And once you're a reader, you're not going to stop. Well, generally, you don't stop. And also, it was at a crucial time uh, when kids are about 11 or 12, usually when little kids will read books and then they drop off around 11 or 12 because in their minds they have other things to do. But these books, and my own maybe, come along at a time that turns them into readers for life. So they never stop reading. And once they're finished Harry Potter, then they can go on to Young Bond, then they can go on to Artemis Fowl, then they go on to Percy Jackson. So there's loads of books for them to read. And with every one, you get more new readers being created. And another thing I think is television and movies have woken up to the fact that kids' books are great, uh, make great movies and they make great TV. And also the special effects now, you can make them and they don't look silly anymore. I mean, in the 70s and 80s, special effects were silly. You just had to ignore them and pretend they look real. But now anything less than total realism is not acceptable anymore to kids. So they can make movies out of all these books and that is another way to introduce the kids to reading. Definitely. And what I think it's fascinating about all of these young adult reads, including Art Miss Fowl, is the fact that adults are reading them as well. And are just in, as enthusiastic. I know that around the Penguin Towers, there's been a lot of people that have been like, oh my God, I need to get my hands on this last book. Why is it so appealing across such an age spectrum? I think it's something to do with the style of the writing. I have always said that if it's a genuinely good book, any book, it will be enjoyed by anybody who can read it. So even, you know, picture books or Peter Rabbit or whatever, if, it, if it's nicely written. I mean, I remember reading Winnie the Pooh with my kids and I enjoyed it just as much as them. So I think if you write a book for 12 year olds, you have to remember that they are just as smart as I am, except they don't have the life experience. When I was 12, I was reading adult books uh, more than kids books. And I think there are a lot of kids out there like me uh, who want to feel a bit more grown up and they so they read up a level. And so I decided to pitch Artemis Fowl at this level where it's more or less an adult book, but it just has kid subject matter, if you know what I mean. So it's, ri- it's written in exactly the same style as my adult novels. I don't think any harder for those. So I think that's paid off. And maybe I knew that because I taught for so long uh, and I could see that kids were so bored with what they considered baby stuff and at 12, they wanted to be adults. And so this book is is pitched to those smart kids. Yeah, definitely. And with this being the last in the series, what can you say right now to encourage people that haven't read Artemis Fowl to go back and pick it up from the beginning of the series and capture this world and enter it? Well, I, I think the world that I've created in Artemis Fowl has, has already pulled in millions of kids and they can't all be wrong. So uh, I, if, if you haven't read Artemis Fowl, my advice to you would be to buy the first one or even go into the bookstore and look at the first page. And I think you will be grabbed by that. And I, I purposefully created that first chapter to pull people into the story. So page one and two will be enough. And if you if you like it at that point, go ahead. And if you don't, then you're not going to like the rest of it. So it's a very small and short test or even borrow it from the kids sitting beside you and just look at page one or two. And after that, 
make your decision. Amazing. And for fans of yours, what are you working on now, now that Art Mess is over? Uh, I have a new series coming out next year, which is called Warp, W-A-R-P, which stands for Witness Anonymous Relocation Program. And it's kind of a sci-fi steampunk adventure about a boy called Riley, who is from Victorian London, who escapes into a quantum tunnel or a wormhole into modern day London. And he's pursued by this evil creature who uh, is intent on killing him. So it's a chase across time. But as usual, it has a lot of the same trademark comic moments and very fast and thrilling adventure. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for coming in today, Owen. Absolutely. My pleasure. And that's it from the Penguin podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, please visit the website at penguinpodcast.co.uk and if you have any comments or suggestions, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or if you'd rather tweet us, we're at at penguinpodcast. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.